Hi, this is Sally and welcome to Reclaiming Pride, LGBT plus survivors of narcissistic abuse. Before we start, there is a trigger warning. The episodes of this podcast may at times refer to domestic violence, emotional, financial and sexual abuse. To begin, as always, I'd like us to have a one word feelings check and that means what is one word for how you are feeling in this moment? Now, this week is going to be for the psychology buffs among you. We are going to be taking a look at the functions of something called operant conditioning and its sidekick intermittent reinforcement and how these function in narcissistic and toxic relationships. So even though this may sound completely alien to you, if you've never heard of either of these things, I can guarantee that you will have experienced this frequently in your narcissistic relationship. So as always, before we dive in, let's take a look at some background on these two concepts. First, operant conditioning. Operant conditioning is a learning process. This is where behaviors are modified through reinforcement and or punishment. So here are the basic principles of operant conditioning. First, you've got reinforcement. So providing a desirable stimulus after a behavior increases the likelihood that the behavior will be repeated. There are positive reinforcers or rewards and negative reinforcers, removal of an unpleasant stimulus. Then you've got punishment. So applying an undesirable stimulus after a behavior decreases the likelihood that that behavior will be repeated. Makes sense, right? There are positive punishments, adding an unpleasant stimulus and negative punishments, removing a pleasant stimulus. So you see the ways that positive and negative kind of are used not quite intuitively when we're talking about reinforcement and punishment. Then you have extinction. So this is removing any reinforcement following a behavior, and this leads to a decrease in that behavior over time. So if you were neither punished for something or given positive reinforcement for something, there's just no reaction whatsoever, then that behavior will decrease over time. And finally, there's shaping. So that's reinforcing behaviors that progressively approximate a desired final behavior. So a kind of manipulation. Operant conditioning uses consequence-based training to strengthen or weaken voluntary behaviors. So for example, giving a treat when a dog sits teaches the dog to regularly offer the sit behavior because it knows that it's going to get a treat if it does this. Removing computer access when a child misbehaves punishes that unwanted behavior. The schedules of reinforcement also matter a lot. So continuous reinforcement strengthens behavior fastest, but leads to an extinction fastest if stopped. Intermittent reinforcement leads to slower learning but much stronger resistance to extinction. So intermittent reinforcement sometimes means that you don't know when the reinforcement or punishment is going to come. So who came up with this concept of operant conditioning? So operant conditioning was first extensively studied and described by the behaviorist B.F. Skinner, and this was in the 1930s. So some key contributions to the development of the idea of operant conditioning include these people. So we have Edward Thorndike. So that was back in the 1800s. In 1898, Thorndike documented the so-called law of effect, which stated behaviors that are followed by satisfactory outcomes are strengthened. This laid the basic framework for the whole operant conditioning idea before it was even called operant conditioning. Then you've got John B. Watson. So he's the founder of behaviorism. 
Watson advocated for studying observable behavior rather than internal mental processes. This helped shift the focus to external behavioral outcomes. Then you've got B.F. Skinner. So he conducted extensive research on operant conditioning, including his famous Skinner box experiments. We're going to look at what that is in a minute. Skinner coined the term operant conditioning, differentiated between types of reinforcements and punishments, and demonstrated shaping and schedules of reinforcement. After that, you have Clark Hull. So this person identified and mathematically described the principles of behavioral habit strength and conditioning. He quantified the effects of reinforcement frequency and magnitude. So basically, he put numbers and logic to how frequency and magnitude of reinforcement or punishment makes a difference with operant conditioning. Then finally, Edward Tolman. Although he's not a full behaviorist, Tolman compared behavioral conditioning and cognitive maps for learning, expanding the study of operant conditioning. So while we can see that there are multiple scientists who work with the idea of operant conditioning, B.F. Skinner is considered the central pioneer and founder of our modern understanding of operant conditioning based on his thorough theoretical framework and experimental research. Skinner's work opened up widespread applications for operant conditioning approaches. So what is this Skinner box experiment that I mentioned earlier on? So let's let's take a look at what that was. So one of the most famous experiments by B.F. Skinner was the demonstration of operant conditioning with his so-called Skinner box experiment. So the key points about the experiment are, first, there's a box. The box contained a lever and a food tray, plus a device to deliver food pellets. The experimental subject was a rat placed in the box. When the rat pressed the lever, a food pellet was immediately dispensed into the food tray. So the rat was observed over time to determine rates of lever pressing. In other words, the rat worked out that there was a schedule. With this simple positive reinforcement schedule, the rats learned to press the lever frequently to receive more food pellets. The lever press itself is the operant behavior. In other words, they are operating the lever to receive the intermittent reinforcement, the pellets, for their good behavior. Rates of lever pressing increased dramatically compared to control groups that received no food reward, showing the rat had learned the acquired behavior through operant conditioning. Skinner then used different reinforcement schedules like fixed intervals, variable intervals, fixed ratios, and variable ratios to study how rates of the target behavior changed. Then there was extinction. So extinction of the lever pressing would occur if the food reinforcement was removed. So in other words, once no food came out when the lever was pressed, the rat would stop pressing it. This simple experiment demonstrated operant conditioning in action. So the Skinner box became a staple in behavioral psychology. Labs then studied reinforcement principles on a variety of organisms. It provided concrete evidence for Skinner's theories on operant conditioning which had a lasting effect over the field. So that's the basis of all of the experimentation that led to the coining of the phrase operant conditioning. So now let's apply what we now know to narcissistic relationships. So how do narcissists use operant conditioning? So here are a few ways that narcissists and toxic people may use this operant conditioning along with intermittent reinforcement. So let's start with positive reinforcement. 
Narcissists might praise and flatter someone when they behave in ways that benefit the narcissist, reinforcing those behaviours. But the praise is often insincere and intermittent. Then there's negative reinforcement. Narcissists may withdraw attention or give the silent treatment when someone displeases them, training the person to avoid those behaviours to stop the unpleasant reaction. So in other words, when they give you the silent treatment, even though you may not know exactly what it is that you did to provoke this stonewalling silent treatment, it makes you paranoid around all the behaviours you were demonstrating just before it started. And it's also a way of keeping you off balance. Then there's intermittent reinforcement. So narcissists frequently go through idealization and devaluation cycles in relationships. During idealization, they will shower someone with praise and affection, but then withdraw it during the devaluation period, keeping the person hooked and trying to wing back the positive reinforcement. So that's why relationships with these people are rarely 100% awful, because if they were, you wouldn't stay. So what they do is they give you this intermittent reinforcement. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know why it's coming and you don't know when is key. And yet you're kind of constantly chasing that carrot to get that idealization phase back. And they know this. Then there's punishment. Narcissists will rage, criticize, shame or guilt trip someone when displeased, punishing behaviors they do not want. But again, it's inconsistent and keeps the person off balance. So you're going to notice that what they do is highly sophisticated because it's purposefully inconsistent. Then there's extinction. Narcissists may completely withdraw attention and affection during the discard phase, removing the positive reinforcement that had been training and conditioning someone's behaviors during the relationship. So the inconsistency and unpredictability make the reinforcement more potent and keep victims trapped in the narcissist's power and control cycles always seeking the next reward, quote unquote. It creates trauma bonding and an addictive mindset to the narcissistic abuser. So how do NPD individuals use intermittent reinforcement? People with narcissistic personality disorder frequently utilize intermittent reinforcement in their relationships as a way to manipulate and maintain control. So some of the ways they do this might include idealization and devaluation. So as we've seen, they'll one minute they'll shower someone with extreme praise, gifts and affection in the idealization phase. And this will be shortly followed by withdrawing all positive reinforcement during the devaluation stage, even over minor incidents that you actually may not have even noticed. This back and forth emotional whiplash keeps the partner hooked. Then there's future faking. See if you recognize this. The narcissist will make grandiose promises about the future of the relationship or benefits to you, but then fail to follow through. The unfulfilled hope keeps you invested. Then there's approval withdrawal. This was really, really common with my ex. They provide praise and validation when their partner behaves as desired, then ignore or invalidate them when displeased, to coerce the wanted behavior. Then there's triangulation. They will flaunt attention given to others and compare you unfavorably to them as a manipulation tactic. And it's also extremely demoralizing. Then there's the silent treatment, suddenly disappearing emotionally or physically, refusing to contact the person or instill confusion and abandonment fear. Then there's hoovering. So this is the brief periods of positive attention and behaviors aimed at 
sucking the partner back into the relationship after the devaluation phase or silent treatment. And we will have a whole episode on hoovering and how it works and be aware that this can actually happen after the relationship is over. My relationship with my ex has been over for two years and there's not a day that goes by when I don't wonder when the hoovering may begin. I hope never. By keeping the positive reinforcement uncertain, yet offering just enough to maintain hope, the narcissist creates an addictive dynamic where the partner is conditioned to work harder for their affection. This amplification of highs and lows heightens emotional dependence, and this creates a very traumatic bond with the narcissist. Now, you may have already worked this out by listening to this, but there is a striking similarity between gambling, intermittent reinforcement, and being in a toxic relationship. So let's take a look at some of those patterns and how they work in abusive relationships, and also gambling. So with gambling and in toxic relationships, you have this unpredictability. With both gambling and an abusive partner, you never know when you might quote unquote win. The reinforcement is irregular and uncertain. This randomness enhances the reward value. So I know I've mentioned in previous episodes that even when things were going really, really well, looking at it now from an objective point of view, even the good times often really weren't that great, but it's because they were set against this contrast of such awful times that it actually felt wonderful. And when those wonderful quote unquote times would happen, it would be extremely unpredictable. Then you've got variable ratio reinforcement. So in gambling, rewards are based on variable wins after an unpredictable number of tries. Similarly, in an abusive relationship, the partner may randomly alternate idealization and affection with devaluation, keeping their victim hooked. This is variable ratio reinforcement. Then you've got losses disguised as wins. Does that sound familiar? With gambling, small payouts and near misses give an illusion of winning when you're really losing overall. Abusers may occasionally give just enough affection to maintain hope without any real change. Then there's the respite effect. Gamblers keep playing after a win to experience reward relief once again. In the same way, abuse victims experience a similar high when granted respite from mistreatment, then tolerance. Over time, more gambling or abuse is needed to achieve the same emotional effect. So this is often why when people are in relationships with narcissistic people, whether it's a partner, friend, family member, you will notice over time that the treatment in the bad times actually gets worse because that person realizes that they have to do more to scare you, to keep you hooked. Then there is withdrawal. So remove gambling or the abuser and these both lead to distress. Then there's chasing losses. So gamblers will try to recoup losses by gambling again, by gambling more, right? Abuse victims try to win back the idealization phase by pleasing their abuser. I remember doing that. I remember how demoralizing it was, and I knew it was happening. Then there's false hope. So we have a whole episode on that and how false hope can indeed elongate an abusive relationship. Gamblers and abuse victims overestimate their chances of big future wins based on small, intermittent gains. So there it is. Understanding the shared dysfunctional dynamics between gambling and abusive relationships 
is important for treating any kind of addiction or abuse recovery. The intermittent reinforcement makes stopping exceptionally difficult in both cases. So to conclude, narcissists frequently exploit operant conditioning and intermittent reinforcement in interpersonal relationships as insidious tools for establishing control. By strategically rewarding desired behaviors with praise or affection, then punishing unwanted behaviors with emotional withdrawal, they train us to comply with their demands. The intermittent nature of the rewards keeps the partner perpetually invested and trying to earn positive reinforcement, like a gambler at a slot machine who occasionally wins big. This unpredictable cycle of idealization and devaluation establishes an addiction to the narcissist's approval. The emotional highs activate reward circuits in the brain, while the lows induce desperation to avoid punishment and regain the next fix of good things. Understanding how narcissists use these psychological tactics can help identify manipulation in relationships. So I know that was an awful lot of quite technical uh, information. It took me a while to get my head around all of it too, but as soon as I did, I recognized every part of it from the relationship with my ex. So what we're going to do now is take a break so that we can kind of synthesize some of that information. And then afterwards, I'll be back with another listener Q&A question. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This week's listener question is, are people born with narcissistic personality disorder? So here's the best answer I can give. Well, unfortunately, there's no clear consensus on whether people are inherently born with NPD or not. So most experts believe it's a complex interaction between genetic, biological factors, and also environmental experiences. So here are some key perspectives on whether someone is kind of a candidate for nature or nurture when it comes to narcissistic personality disorder. So first, you've got genetics. So twin studies, so studies on identical twins, show narcissism has a genetic heritability component, suggesting natural predispositions may exist. Certain traits like extroversion and disinhibition seem connected to genetics. Then next, You've got brain structure. I found this one fascinating. Some emerging research has found differences in the brain structure and function of those with NPD, such as increased connectivity in the default mode network. So this also suggests a biological basis for narcissistic personality disorder. So what is the default mode network? So the default mode network interacts dynamically with other networks in the brain that handle external attention and cognitively demanding tasks. So the DMN refers to a collection of connected brain areas 
that are more active when we are awake than at rest. Rather than actively using our brain on focused tasks or the outside world, the DMN supports inwardly directed thinking. So abnormalities in the DMN have been linked to various conditions like depression, autism, schizophrenia, and also Alzheimer's disease. So that kind of inwardly directed thinking, that reflection that we know that narcissists really cannot do is lacking. So that's why certain scientists now are thinking that there are changes in brain structure with people with NPD because the DMN is highly inhibited in those people. Then there's the early childhood experiences. So issues with excessive parental pampering, praise, or expectations of specialness might foster emerging narcissism in a youth. Also, there's the polar opposite of this. So you've got harsh criticism, neglect, a lack of ability to attach to the parental figure or adult who's caring for the child could also lead to overcompensation and a shutdown of empathy in somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder. Then you've got learning and reinforcement. So narcissistic behaviors like vanity or dominance and control over others might be shaped by receiving rewards or attention for these acts, maybe at a young age. Then there are the co-occurring mental health issues. So NPD may develop alongside conditions like bipolar disorder or substance abuse. The mixture, mixture of these factors can influence narcissistic tendencies. This is also called comorbidity. You will have heard me mention this in previous episodes. So for example, someone could have NPD comorbid with many aspects of BPD or borderline personality disorder. Then there's the environment, competitive individualistic cultures that value status and wealth and power are thought to reinforce the illicit narcissistic traits. Although this doesn't necessarily turn someone into a full-blown narcissist with NPD. Overall, there are likely sort of multiple contributing causes, both innate and environmental, as to why somebody has NPD. While genetics might predispose someone, contextual influences still play a major role in determining if a narcissistic trait becomes a full-blown personality disorder. More research is needed on the development of MPD, which is, in essence, an abusive disorder. So I hope this helped to answer your question. Please reach out and message me. You can message me via the Facebook or the Instagram pages of this podcast if you'd like me to feature a question that you have on the podcast. So links to both of these are on the podcast webpage. Please note, this podcast is not intended to replace professional therapy or counselling. It serves as a supplementary resource for support and encouragement. Listeners, you are encouraged to seek professional help if needed. I did and it still works for me every day. Stay tuned and I look forward to healing with you next time. Bye-bye.